cloth. I tend to miss pride, which is funny because you'd think I would get all of them. I'm so educated and well-read. I have such a great memory, and usually I know exactly what I'm talking about. I am also refreshingly humble, which is one of my best qualities. Actually, not being able to name the seven deadly sins could just mean that you are a close follower of early Christian teachings. The list of sins that we have now as part of the Catholic tradition has changed over the centuries and didn't really solidify until the 6th century, common era. In fact, the list became canon, that is certain for all time, I think not really until the 14th century, and not in the Bible at all, but in another great work, Dante's The Divine Comedy. Now, the list of seven deadly sins is part of the Roman Catholic Catechism and so required reading or reciting for Catholic children and adults around the world. The Bible, as it turns out, doesn't have this particular list at all. It has a lot of lists, some more obscure than others, and there is a list of seven things that the Lord hates found in the book of Proverbs. The only real overlap, though, is pride, which I think means I'm up a creek no matter which list you go with. Among other things on that biblical list are a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, and my favorite, because the phrasing strikes me as sort of adorable, feet that are swift to run toward mischief. (laughs) I should say that if we go with that biblical list, my daughter is in really big trouble. (laughs) Of course, we're not really likely to go with either list, are we? Ethical culturists, and indeed liberal religious folks in general, aren't that big on sin. We don't go for that guilt-ridden, heavy-handed language of some of those traditional religions. We're past all that kind of stuff, focused on the good of the person. Enlightened, informed, and progressive, we are beyond sin. (laughs) If only... Whether we call it sin or not, I feel reasonably certain that we've all done something not quite perfectly in our lives. The Greek word translated as sin in most of the New Testament actually means something more like missing the mark, the idea that we haven't done quite what we hoped we would do. The English word sin comes from the Old English sin, S-Y-N-N, and seems to have a root meaning that something like it is so or it is true used in the context of proven guilt. It is true, I did that thing. And while the concept of sin is most often associated with traditional religions and the idea of sinning against a deity, there's nothing in the root to suggest it must be so. I imagine, though, that I have not completely convinced some of you here that sin should be easily incorporated into our vocabulary. And some of you may be thinking, wait, wasn't the title of this platform something else entirely? Why is Amanda taking us on a romp through Catholic catechism? You're right, of course. This platform address title did promise something more, and it's a something more that I'm hoping will help us open up the conversation a little bit, find some room for ourselves in this whole big sin thing. And who better to do that for us than Gandhi? Mahatma Gandhi was not only a pioneer of nonviolent resistance, but also enormously well-read in most world religions. 
In many ways, his own writing is a kind of gift to liberal religious leaders, since he frequently reinterpreted traditional religious language and mandates and added his own spin, speaking from his tradition of Hinduism, but also from his viewpoint as a political and social activist. So imagine my delight when I found a list of Gandhi's seven sins on a poster hung, appropriately enough, in a Unitarian Universalist retreat center, a place where I guarantee you would never find the original list unless it were presented in a highly ironic format. Well, there was this poster of Gandhi's seven social sins, the ones he saw as highly detrimental to spiritual progress. I'd like to just read them to you, and then we'll talk about them a little bit more. Politics without principle. Wealth without work. Pleasure without conscience. Knowledge without character. Commerce without morality. Science without humanity. Worship without sacrifice. Now, at one point in my planning for this platform address, I thought that what I would do would be to go through the original list of sins and then go through Gandhi's list, one by one, and talk about the differences in each, the meaning behind every word, the ways our own lives, personally and collectively, might be influenced by our understanding of these two lists. Then I started thinking about how 7 plus 7 is 14. And if I spent even just 10 minutes on each sin we were looking at, it was about two or three hours we'd be spending together. And I don't know about you, but to me, that's a whole lot of sin. So instead of looking at each sin on those two lists individually, I'd like to look at them in total to think about sin in general and what it means or doesn't mean for us. Because here's the thing. I am willing to bet that for at least some of you, Gandhi's list of sins was an awful lot more appealing than the original list. As I wrote that, I realized appealing wasn't quite the word I wanted. I mean to say that that list might have seemed more legitimate to you, more fair, that Gandhi had pinpointed things that were really wrong in the world, while the original list perhaps just raised your hackles, got you going down some path that isn't comfortable. If that was true for you, you're by no means alone. I think many liberal religious people would have the same experience, feeling as though Gandhi's list seems pretty good, while the original seven are just dreamed up by the religious establishment to keep us from having fun. There's no question that many of us have our buttons pushed by the language of religious traditions that we either left or we never felt were home. But I think there's another reason that Gandhi's list might strike us as more suitable, more helpful. When I was in seminary, one of the big topics of conversation was whether the most important kind of sin was individual sin or corporate sin. That is, sin involving a body of people, a group, a nation, a society. Liberal religious folks tend to be more comfortable talking about corporate sin rather than individual sin, talking about the societal sin of environmental degradation, for instance, rather than about the individual sin of gluttony. But the truth is that individual choices are linked to social choices. In very simplified terms, environmental degradation 
is caused by a society of gluttons, a world of people who consume to excess. So while I admit to feeling most comfortable myself when talking about the ways in which our society errs, the ways in which our nation or our world misses the mark, I have to acknowledge that any group is just made up of people. And so I can't let my understanding of sin, my understanding of wrongdoing, stop before I get to myself and the choices I make all on my own. Gandhi's list, I think, does a good job of building bridges between the personal and the global, helping us to see the connections between the two. Wealth without work, for instance, seems to be speaking to our personal lives, the way in which we make our money, while commerce without morality connects to the larger system, the financial markets, perhaps, and their regulation, or lack thereof, <clears throat> Congress. But with just a little more effort, I think we can get there with that original list, too, seeing the ways that our individual actions contribute toward or work against a well-functioning civil society. Even if we buy into this idea, though, that our individual actions are related to the actions of the whole, and therefore we can sin, we can do wrong, both individually and corporately, well, how wrong are those things on the original list? I mean, a little lust, a little sloth, a tiny bit of gluttony, that kind of sounds like a nice Sunday afternoon. <laughs> and indeed, the original list of seven deadly sins has been used to create highly restrictive, I would say overly restrictive, boundaries on human behavior, boundaries that work against the appropriate pleasure-seeking side of ourselves. A few weeks ago, a member of West shared with me a series of articles from a Johns Hopkins magazine called The Seven Deadly Sins and Why They're Not Always So Bad. The articles covered a variety of subjects, everything from competitive eating to Wall Street trading. But what I liked best was the commentary peppered throughout, talking about the upsides of those infamous sins. For instance, taken in small doses, envy sometimes leads to healthy competition. And anger, when used well, can transform the world. They're right, of course. There are upsides to that list of sins. There are times when we can use the emotions behind the sins in healthy and productive ways. And to be honest, there are times when we just want to indulge in safe, non-destructive emotional experiences. The Dixie Chicks, who I sometimes think of as the liberal religious answer to country music, have a great song called Sin Wagon. It's a post-breakup song, of course, and it follows the general theme of he ran around and now it's my turn. The chorus goes, praise the Lord and pass the ammunition, need a little bit more of what I've been missing. I don't know where I'll be crashing, but I'm arriving on a sin wagon. So there's this sense, I think, that lists of sins keep us from having fun, keep us from dancing when our heart says to dance. Perhaps it's for that reason that my favorite sin on Gandhi's list, and again, I don't think I mean my favorite, I mean maybe the best formulated one, is pleasure without conscience. Take pleasure in life, I can imagine saying, 
but don't do it without regard for your fellow human being, without regard for the world that we share. Go ahead and throw one heck of a party, but be sure to recycle the bottles when you're done. That idea of balance is an important one. And again, I think we can apply it to both the lists we're looking at today. Even reading the original list, we can reject the strictest interpretations of it and still see the call to live a life that heals instead of hurts. A life where we love when caring relationships instead of lusting after and pursuing people all over the world outside those relationships, which is actually what the sin of lust refers to in the traditional understanding, not the feeling of desire, but the sexual act with someone who's not your partner. We can read these lists, both of them, and use them as a way to move toward balance in our lives. But what about this whole idea of lists in the first place? Whoever said that anyone, Gandhi, the Catholic Church, Dante, could tell us how to behave? My guess is this is a major sticking point for a lot of liberal religious people, and perhaps it should be. One of the hallmarks of our tradition, both liberal religion more broadly and also particularly ethical culture, is our emphasis on human experience as a source of religious and ethical authority. So if we ourselves are the authority, why do we need a list to tell us what's right or what's wrong? Isn't that what trial and error is for? I have a lot of sympathy for this opinion, despite my strong J-type on the Myers-Briggs, which means, among other things, that I like lists. I believe in the importance of human experience, and especially human experience tested within a caring and supportive community, like an ethical society. Felix Adler, the founder of ethical culture, called ethical societies living laboratories, where we tried out ways of acting, ways of behaving, and then learned from our inevitable mistakes and tried again. Adler didn't make his own list of the seven deadly sins, in part, I imagine, because he wanted people to figure out for themselves what list was true for them, what list gave them the boundaries they needed to live honorable and good lives. This doesn't mean, though, that our friend Felix was any slouch in the Don't You Sin Now department. A few months ago, when I was working on the platform address about the divine spark within, I came across an 1894 address of Adler's called The Penalties of Sin. As a side note, I think I joked then that I might write a platform like that someday, so you cannot say I didn't warn you. In his address, Adler had this to say about sin. There are two problems which have possessed supreme interest for the thinkers in all ages, the problem of sorrow and that of sin, and of the two, the latter is more urgent. It is remarkable how great a space it occupies in what is known as the best literature. Not only do the authors of the Bible give their particular attention to this dark riddle, but Greek tragedy is equally concerned with it. Dante in the Middle Ages and Goethe in modern times devote to the consideration of it their noblest works. Yet modern society, Adler says, as a rule is deficient in the sense of sin. It is so because we lead a too superficial life, because the world is too much with us and distracts our attention from the momentous issues 
of the inner realm. This is the great thing about Adler. Whenever I think I might be getting too religious on you all, I look him up and find that he is right there in my corner, backing me up. Modern society deficient in the sense of sin. Yes, sir. (laughs) The truth is, Adler knew what we all know, what I certainly know from personal experience, that we do sin, we do miss the mark. We let ourselves down, we let each other down, We let our community down from time to time. No religion or ethical philosophy that ignores this simple fact of human nature will be, frankly, of much use to us. The question becomes then not whether or not we sin and not even which list our sin makes it onto, but what we do about it. What response do we have when we know that we haven't done things quite as we ought? Adler's answer is a great one. And you'll hear in it the reason I found this address in the first place, working on that platform back in December. The right attitude for one who has sinned, Adler wrote, is the hopeful, trustful attitude. The aim of all punishment is reformation, and the aim of the punishment we inflict upon ourselves when we repent should be directed to the goal of reformation. And we should cherish in ourselves the belief that we can attain this goal. There is a voice within us which says, I cannot die. It is the voice of our better self. There is a divine spark within us which cannot be extinguished. We need only to open our eyes to see it. When we have dug down to the depths of our nature and come to the hard bedrock beneath, Let us raise the axe of repentance and strike the rock, and from beneath its flinty surface will well up the living stream by which we shall be cleansed. Now, first of all, was that man a good speaker or what? But even in the humblest language, the response that Adler calls on us to embrace when we have done things wrong is a beautiful one. To try and do better. Indeed, to use the moment of transgression as a chance to connect with our deepest selves, our truest selves, and to trust in that goodness within us so that it can lead us right again. And in a nutshell, I think that's what we ought to be doing in the world, in our own lives, and especially here at the Ethical Society. Part of what we are, part of that living laboratory we hope to be, is learning to hold ourselves and each other accountable when we have missed the mark. We know it usually, list or not. I can tell when I start slipping into inappropriate pride, the same way I can look at America's financial system and feel pretty sure there's some commerce without morality going on there. It's so important for us to be able to acknowledge when we're less than perfect, and even more to remind ourselves and each other about that deep well of goodness we hold inside us. Many of you know the catchphrase around here, one of Felix Adler's own, elicit the best in others and thereby in yourself. It's part of ethical culture philosophy, but the great thing about it is it really does work as a kind of reminder. I've said it to myself when I've gotten impatient with a slow clerk at the checkout counter. Is looking at my watch and rolling my eyes eliciting the best in her, I wonder? 
The answer, for those of you keeping track at home, is no. And I've heard it said at meetings here, too, a kind of reminder for all gathered about the intent of our work together. Eliciting the best doesn't mean we can't disagree with each other or sometimes be driven a little crazy by each other. But it means that we speak about each other even when we disagree with respect. Even when we are being driven a little crazy, we treat each other with kindness. For some congregations, this work is helped by having an intentional covenant, a kind of special agreement among all members about how they want to behave together, how they want to be together. The West staff has a covenant like this, which we created at a staff retreat, and which asks us to respect each other's work, to speak well of each other, to remember that we're all on the same team, even when we're working on very different projects. Mary and I are part of a covenant through our membership in the Unitarian Universalist Ministers Association, too. And that covenant asks us much the same thing, to treat our colleagues with professional courtesy. In a small movement like Unitarian Universalism and ethical culture, too, the clergy all tend to know each other. And it's so easy to get pulled into the temptation of gossip and not-so-charitable comments. Actually, that can happen almost anywhere, I find. Families, congregations, offices. The covenant that we share asks us not to agree with our colleagues, and not even to only ever speak well of them. But it asks us to be judicious in our words, to speak carefully in public and kindly in private. It's a reminder, I think, that we are fellow human beings, and that we owe each other at least some consideration. Covenants, or as they're often called in congregations, behavioral covenants, are a way of putting structure around what we try to do here at the Ethical Society, capitalized E and S, and what I hope we try to do in any ethical society, lowercase. No one would imagine that a covenant is never broken, just as no one should imagine that we never sin. But we always have another chance to live more fully into the promises we have made, to try again to be the person we hope to be, to reach into that deep well of goodness, that divine spark that cannot die, and connect with the best part of ourselves. I close today with words from A. Powell Davies, the minister of All Souls Unitarian here in D.C. in the 1950s, and someone who seemed to be on the same page with Adler about sin. He wrote, I have never agreed with those who tried to tell us that the whole idea of sin is out of date. To the best of my observation and belief, sin is highly contemporary, and we are all up to our necks in it. But this doesn't mean that to avoid drowning in sin, we must clutch at theological straws. It doesn't mean that we must surrender all attempts at swimming our way to the shore. Davies goes on to talk about two fallacies. One from popular psychologists of his day who said that we are only good. And the other from some traditional religious teachers who said that we are only bad. We are good people as well as bad people, Davies wrote, and we do good deeds as well as bad deeds. We have done evil things in the world, but we have also done some very good things, 
even some rather magnificent and generous things. There is health in us, and our hope is not in a miracle from the skies, but in the health that is in us. After all the different lists, I find it is this idea that speaks to me the most. There is health in us. There is a divine spark, a goodness about us that we can reach. So I won't tell you now to go out and sin no more, because I think it would be ineffective. (laughs) But to go out and remember your health, to remember your goodness, And in that remembering, to try each day to become more of who you want to be.